Today, we are going to continue our study in the book of Ezekiel um, by kind of looking at a third word picture or idea that uh, God gives to Ezekiel. You remember two days ago, uh, we talked about the fact that we are a dirty people that is desperately in need of cleansing. Uh, Yesterday, we talked about being lost sheep who need a shepherd. And today, we're going to talk about the breath of life, that we are in fact a dead people who desperately need God's work in bringing new life to us. Before we get there, though, let's kind of review what we've been talking about. Again, we've been talking about life in a big way this week. We've been talking about the fact that in life, each and every one of us have certain expectations, certain desires, certain longings. We, we hope for a certain kind of future and even a certain kind of present. We want things like peace and confidence and joy and obedience and, and, and comfort. But so often in life, both internally and externally, we find the exact opposite. We find ourselves exhausted and anxious and fearful and guilty. We're just messy people living in a messy, messy world, in messy churches, in messy families. And so we needed to lay a few ground rules as we even started out together. First, we had to admit that our mess is in fact real and eternally significant. Our mess isn't something we can ignore. Our mess isn't imaginary. It is an ever-present reality in every single day that we live life here on earth. It's also eternally significant. That means our mess matters. We have to do something with our mess. We need our mess to be addressed. We also recognize that our mess is inside of us and outside of us. It's something we deal with internally in our emotions, in our thoughts, in our desires, in our temptations, in the conclusions that we draw, in the things that motivate us. It's something that we experience outside of us too, though, right? Our mess is something that we find here at RYM. It's something that you'll find the moment you step back into your home environment. Mess is something that that you will find again come fall in school. Your mess is everywhere around you. Because of that, we've had to admit that our mess is too big for us to adequately address on our own. We can't wrap our hands around it. We can't gather enough resources to correct it. We can't even come together as a group of people to make things right again. But then we talked about some good news. The good news is that God moves toward our mess in and through the life and ministry of Jesus. That God knows who we are, God knows what we need, and God is committed to adequately addressing every single aspect of our sin, our brokenness, and our fallen condition in the life, death, resurrection, and promised return of Jesus Christ. Okay? With that in mind, we're going to turn our attention now to Ezekiel chapter 37, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 for us. We're actually going to come back tomorrow and finish the rest of this chapter with one final look at God's work in our lives. Ezekiel 37, remember this is God's word for you and for me, and it's the means that God has given by His Spirit to bring lasting transformation to our lives. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1. 
Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Again, I think it's rather obvious there, right, as we read, that we have a problem, and that God, in His power and in His way, brings a lasting solution. But as we think about our mess and God's solution, let's start again with a story. My all-time favorite Disney movie is Beauty and the Beast. I remember, again, attending this movie as a small child and being absolutely captivated by the opening scene where it tells about the prince's rejection of the old lady in stained glass windows. I remember being captivated by the idea that, that household objects could somehow be alive. I remember being wrapped into this idea of sacrifice and, and change and family and growth. I remember being captivated by the music. But I also remember being absolutely shocked as the plot unfolded. If you're familiar with Beauty and the Beast, and I think many of you are, then you'll know that the story really begins with Belle's father wandering into the woods in the midst of a storm and finding himself at Beast's Castle. Beast's Castle is not a place for outsiders, and as a result of his trespass, he's thrown into the dungeon. Belle eventually finds her father and offers an exchange, her own life for her dad. And so Belle then finds herself in captivity with a selfish, violent, crude, petty, distant beast of a man. 
the reality is what the old woman had done is she had made his spirit be reflected on his outside, right? But over the course of the movie, we, we begin to gain hope. Because the beast, who is promised that he will remain forever in that condition, if he does not find someone to love him by his 21st birthday, he begins to develop a, a normal, somewhat healthy relationship with Bill. She begins to affect change in his life. We see him become more patient and caring and generous. But then Bell's father grows very sick. And the beast is, is faced with a decision point, right? He chooses to send her away to care for her father. And so our hopes are, are somewhat lost in that moment. Because our hope for love, our hope for restoration, our hope for life is taken away. Bell, to convince the townspeople that her father isn't crazy, actually shows a picture of the beast to Gaston and those gathered together through the magic mirror. And then the people are riled up into a fever pitch and they burst into song. Through the mist, through the woods, through the darkness and the shadows, it's a nightmare, but it's one exciting ride. Um, and they go charging into the castle. Then my favorite scene when the dresser like jumps from the balcony. I love that. Um, and, and we find Beast and Gaston locked in battle together. And what happens? The Beast is stabbed. And although he, he deals with the threat of Gaston and the castle is delivered from the threat of the villagers, we watch the beast crumple to the floor dead. Let me tell you, in, in my six or eight or however old I was, mind and heart, that was an absolute sorrow. That was a shocking death. And then to make matters worse, Disney had me right where they wanted me. You, you pan over to the rose, right? And the last petal just goes... And I remember in my, in my small boyhood brain thinking, No! No, we've come this far. We've seen this much hope, this much life. And then Belle is crumpled over his dead body and she says, I love him. And then in the way only Disney can, right? There's this beautiful magic. It's like fireworks in the reverse. You get this shoo, shoo, shoo. And then his cloak wraps all around him and then there's more cool music. Dun, 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 and then he wheels around looking like a French Fabio. <laughs> but, but think about where you are if you saw that movie as a small child. You're going, yes, 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 it's him. We, we got life out of death. We got joy out of sorrow. We got hope out of despair. We love that. We long for that. Why? Because whether we choose to admit it or not, we recognize that we need resurrection. 
What is our mess according to Ezekiel chapter 37? We're dead. That's a very grim picture. It's a very graphic picture. We're told early in chapter 37 that the Lord brings Ezekiel out into a valley in the Spirit. That's biblical language that often communicates the idea that a prophet is receiving a vision of something. So this is not necessarily an actual event, but something that Ezekiel receives as a prophetic vision, as something that is teaching a broader lesson. And what does Ezekiel see in this valley? It is a valley full of bones. Bones represent death. Yesterday I was walking with some of my students to Thomas's Donuts, and there was a dead bird on the side of the road. When you can see a bird's bones, that's a bad thing. What do we learn about these bones? Well, we learn about these bones and about ourselves and about the people of Israel and about all those who have rejected the truth of God that we are really, really dead. The bones here are scattered. You may have heard as I read that when Ezekiel begins to prophesy the command of the Lord, the, the bones begin to rattle and, and suck back together. That means that Ezekiel is not walking through a valley that's sort of neatly arranged skeletons. Imagine a valley where you've got a skull kind of over there and maybe a rib cage over here and shoulders or shoulder blades like over there and you've got a few leg bones over here. It's just, it's like somebody took a bone jigsaw puzzle and just turned the box upside down in the valley. These bones are everywhere. There are so many of them that you can't even begin to make sense of them. What else is true of these bones? They are very dry bones. These are bones that have been baking in the sun. So there's a sense in which, even though they're already bones, these are old bones. Sun-bleached bones. There isn't anything lively or fresh or lifelike about these bones. They are very, very dry. I think this is rather obvious to us, right? But if, you've got, if you have bones, then you don't have muscles or tendons or internal organs or skin. You, you don't have all the other things that are necessary for human life. All the other pieces and parts that make us who and what we are. Again, what's the point? God is helping Ezekiel see, and he is helping us see, that we are not simply you know, sick and in need of a little healing. We are sort of freshly dead. We are desperately and long dead. The last thing we see here about these bones and about these bodies is that they lack the breath of life. Why is it important to recognize that? Well, I think we're going to see several reasons as we go forward this morning, but let's remember that it is the breath of life that actually makes us alive as image bearers of God, as human beings. If you look back in the book of Genesis, you don't have to turn there. But I think we remember something about the creation of mankind. 
It says in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, that there was no bush of the field that was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground, a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So in a sense, we could say it's all well and good if you have a human body in front of you, and it does have bones, and they are connected properly, and there are internal organs, and there's ligaments and sinews and tendons and skin and hair, but that's just a body unless there's the breath of life. And it's very clear in Ezekiel 37, on several in, at several instances, that that breath of life is lacking. Now, because we are really, really dead, we are also really, really hopeless. It says in verse uh, 11 that the people are saying... Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. That's a really desperate statement. We, we don't like to think at any point that all hope is lost. We like to, to think that in some way, in the midst of every single day, that we have at least something to long for, something to look forward to, some future to grasp. But here in Ezekiel 37, these people say together that our hope is in fact all together lost. Some of you in this room may, may be experiencing something like that hopelessness even this morning. Some of you may wake up day by day and not really see the point of continuing forward. Some of you, even though you may possess physical life, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, you, you feel very dead inside. Can I just say to you, if that's you this morning... Know that what you are experiencing is not unique in the history of the human experience. Know that God and the gospel meets you where you are. Know that there are people gathered together with you this week who desire to come alongside you. Not because they have all of the answers, not because they can give you a quick and easy solution, but because they love you. And because we together can approach a God who is sufficient and gracious and merciful. This is the condition of, of these people here as Ezekiel sees the vision. This is the condition so often of our lives that we are dead. And, and what I want us to see is that ultimately... Because we are dead, because we are dried up, because there is no life in us, we are separated 
from those things that we so desperately want most. We are separated from the things that actually define life. We are separated from satisfaction, contentment, and a true sense of comfort. I don't know about you, but in my biology class in high school, that was 10th grade for me, we had a skeleton in the room. And what was freaky about the skeleton in our biology classroom, if I remember it correctly, is that there was a little plaque above its head that said, you know, human skeleton donated by so-so-so from Vietnam. So we got to know this man's name. That was his skeleton. That's freaky when you're, you know, 15 and you walk into the classroom for the first time. But eventually you get used to it being there. Why? Because it's a skeleton. It just hangs on a happy little rack in the corner. You don't expect a skeleton to start moving, right? It's a skeleton. You don't expect that skeleton one day to say, excuse me, can I interrupt this lesson just to say that this screw in the top of my head is really causing me some pain. Would somebody mind removing that? Because it's dead. You and I, even at our young ages, we we know that there is no expectation from death. Death is final. Death is still. Death is truly hopeless. That is our mess. So what is God's solution? God brings us to life. In the midst of our desperation, in the midst of our emptiness, in the midst of our lifelessness, God recreates life for his people. Life spiritually, life, yes, physically, life relationally. What does this look like? Well, it's actually quite cool. God recreates life first by gathering the bones together. In verse 3, the Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? That's a bold question. You and I, if we're leaning on our own wisdom, we would say, "Mm, no. But Ezekiel sort of defers here, right? Did you see that? Ezekiel says, oh Lord God, you know. I love the simple faith that's reflected in that answer. Ezekiel says, this is kind of above my pay grade, God. I know what's normal. I know what's natural. I know what, from a human perspective, I should expect. But also, God, I know that you are not like me. I know that you are sovereign. I know that you are omnipotent. I know, God, that you can choose to do anything and everything that conforms to your character. So, God, you know what can happen here. God then gives Ezekiel some instructions. This is important. We're going to revisit it later. But what does he tell Ezekiel to do? He tells Ezekiel to start talking, prophesying to these dry bones. Prophesy over these bones and say to them. Right? 
So Ezekiel begins to do this. And as Ezekiel is speaking, as Ezekiel is sharing the declaration of the Lord to this valley of very dry, scattered, dead, dead bones, what starts happening? Well, first, the bones begin to gather together. I kind of get this idea that maybe Ezekiel is walking through the valley prophesying and he's sort of dodging bones as they fly across the valley. You know, heads meet spines and rib cages and pelvis and all the bones start rattling and coming together. Second, this probably looked kind of gross. Once the bones are all back together, we're, we're told that these bodies begin to regrow muscles and tendons. I don't know what this looked like. I probably wouldn't have been there in the moment. But we know this is necessary for life, and so Ezekiel continues to speak, and these bodies are covered in flesh. And then, miraculously, in a move that is absolutely necessary... It says that these bodies, these bones, receive the breath of life. Look again in verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an incredibly great army. Hey, picture this. A valley that was the picture of absolute final death. A valley that was empty of hope and anything that resembled a future. A valley that was desperate is now filled with an exceedingly great army of people who are fully alive. We see that through this picture, God is intentionally renewing the hopes of a hopeless people. The people who had said, our hope is lost, God says in the most desperate condition, in the most desperate situation, in the deepest, darkest, ugliest mess that you can imagine, I am at work, and my work will not be stopped. We are told elsewhere in Scripture that death is in fact the final enemy. But here in Ezekiel 37, it is very clear that even that great enemy that is death cannot stand in the way of God. What else does God do here? Well, I think it's important to recognize that God repeatedly promises a return to life. As God shifts gears to the present circumstances of Israel, he, he starts making a lot of promises in verse 12. God says, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. I will bring you into the land. I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. I will put my spirit within you. You shall live. I will place you in your own land. God is constantly promising a return to life. Now that really matters, not only for Israel, but for us. 
Because we have to come to grips with the fact that on a spiritual level, and even in some senses on a physical level, we should anticipate and we already experience death. That is our inheritance from Adam and Eve in the garden. God said to them, right, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall what? Surely die. We already talked about this week. But as they took of that fruit, the very first thing that they experienced was separation from God. A death in healthy relationship from God. A death in healthy relationship to one another. They experienced separation from God not only in the garden, but for eternity apart from faith in Christ. They experienced a death in their relationship to the created order. Work became hard. Raising a family would be, would be truly cursed. You and I are actually far more dead than we would often like to admit. Some of you in this room are perhaps Harry Potter fans. Um, as you think about Harry Potter, I want you to turn your attention to Dumbledore for a moment. Um, Dumbledore is a wonderful figure. If I could choose to be anybody in literature, Dumbledore would be way up there. Um, some of you know that Dumbledore, the headmaster of Hogwarts, has a pet. That pet actually has an important role in, in the plotline of several of the stories. Um, but that pet is a very interesting mythical creature. What is that pet? Phoenix. A phoenix. Does anybody know the phoenix's name? Fox. There you go. Um, Fox the phoenix. Now, one of the first times we're introduced to Fox the Phoenix, um, Harry is in Dumbledore's study in his office. Dumbledore isn't around, and so Harry just sees Fox sitting on a perch, not looking all that great. Right? Um, and so he kind of gets closer, and then without any action from Harry, what happens? He bursts into flames. He bursts into flames. If you have a pet bird, bursting into flames is not exactly what you want to happen, right? And then we're left with nothing but a pile of ashes. Imagine what it would be like to walk into the office and their head, the headmaster comes around the corner. There's nothing but death at the bottom of the perch. There's no expectation. There's only probably fear on Harry's part. But what do we need to remember about a phoenix? They come back to life. They are literally raised back from the ashes. What you and I need to see, what you and I need to accept, what we need to wrap our minds around by God's grace is that we are in the ashes. That the world that we inhabit in many ways because of our sin and because of the sin of others is a world in ashes. A world without hope. A world without expectation. A world that, yes, retains much beauty. And a people that, yes, retain the image of God. But a world that is dead. 
But what we also need to understand is that God is supernaturally working through Jesus Christ to bring life even from the ashes. To create life in the hearts and lives of people like us who are dead. And that our death, our mess, our ashes, our scattered, desperate, hopeless condition is no match for the sovereign grace of a saving God. How do I know that? Let's take note of a few things here. First, remember, it is God who does all the work. I'm beating that dead horse this week, but it's essential for us to understand. Why? Because again, in Ezekiel 37, God returns to the language of, I will cause breath to enter you. I will open your graves. I will raise you to new life. It is God who is accomplishing the work of our eternal salvation. It is God who is bringing life from death. Remind me, what do dead people do? Nothing. What can dead people do to change their condition? Nothing. What can dead people do to merit acceptance before a holy God? Nothing. We're reminded of this in Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a weird picture, because Paul begins by saying you were dead. But then Paul says, you were dead and you were walking in certain ways and living in certain ways. So it's that we were already dead and then we continue to just walk further into our dead condition. Verse 4, but God. Who? But God. Not God in you. Not God and you and your friends, not even God and you and your church, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So it's God who does the work of salvation. God who does the work of resurrection. God who does the work of giving us life in the midst of our death. Second, notice that God promises the work of resurrection here in Ezekiel 37 before he actually accomplishes it. He tells Ezekiel what he is going to do and how he's going to do it. He says to Ezekiel, okay, I'm going to raise these dead bodies to new life. Here's how I want to accomplish that. You're going to prophesy, you're going to say this, this, and this, and then I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Now that's weird because we might say, why didn't he just do that? Well, it's because God loves promising things and then fulfilling those promises. And that for us is good news. Why? Because God has promised us certain things that he has not yet fulfilled. 
But here's what we need to understand. The lingering fulfillment of a promise is not the same thing as a broken promise. I'm going to say that again. The lingering fulfillment of a promise is not the same thing as a broken promise. So in the ways that God has promised to bring us to new life, even better than we currently experience as His people, know that God can be trusted. Know that Jesus Christ is actually returning to bring us to a place of absolute, eternal, full, and final blessing. Know that even the last enemy that is death will not stand in the way of Jesus Christ. This is interesting. I think it's worth noting that God accomplishes the resurrection of the dead through the proclamation of His Word and the work of the Spirit. Did you notice how God actually raised people from the dead in Ezekiel 37? What did Ezekiel do? He prophesied. And then at the end of the chapter 37, God promises to send His Spirit Let me ask you a question. How does God accomplish our spiritual resurrection in this life? It's through the proclamation of His Word and the work of the Spirit. God's methods haven't changed. I mean, why do we submit ourselves to this thing called church on a regular basis? Because we earnestly believe, based upon the testimony of Scripture, that that is actually one of the places and one of the primary ways that God brings people from death to life. That as His Word is proclaimed, God sends His Spirit and literally accomplishes supernatural resurrection in the lives of His people. The other thing that we need to get a hold of before our time draws to a close is that the resurrection pictured here in Ezekiel 37 holds both spiritual and physical meaning for us as God's people. It holds both spiritual and physical meaning for us as God's people. We already read from Ephesians chapter 2, right? Talking about the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins but that God has made us alive together in Christ. And that is absolutely and essentially true. That from a spiritual, relational perspective, we have been made alive together with Christ, such that when God looks at us, He sees us as sons and as daughters. He sees us as those whom He loves. He sees us as those who now have the privilege of following in obedience, of experiencing great joy, of knowing the comfort and satisfaction of eternal belonging in relationship with God. He sees us as a people who have been purified from our uncleanness. He sees us as a people who have been gathered together, who have received His Spirit. And that sort of resurrection, a spiritual newness of life, is an incredible eternal blessing. But that's not where it ends. 
God also promises, uh, promises us in Jesus Christ that we will be physically resurrected from the dead. That our bones, if we are a people of faith, that our bodies one day will experience exactly what happened here in Ezekiel 37. That we will be raised up again to new life. That we will stand on our feet again. And that we will rejoice in God's place with God's people for all time. Paul is very keen on us understanding this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He specifically says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know that when Jesus Christ returns, when the trumpet sounds and He descends, the dead in Christ will be raised first. And then those who remain alive will meet them and the Lord in the air. And we will be forever with the Lord. Here's what I want you to understand. If Jesus chooses to come back today, those of us who are alive will witness Ezekiel 37 in real time. We will witness bones coming back together, sinews covering those bones, the breath of life re-entering those bodies, and those people joining themselves for all eternity to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will go to be with them, and we will rejoice forever, because the last enemy that is death holds no power over our sovereign God. If in time God chooses not to return, and you and I die in faith, and our bodies are placed into the ground. Know that one day, no matter how long you've been there, no matter how scattered you may be, no matter how far you have decayed, you will be raised again to new life. Because God is committed to raising His people from the dead in every sense of the word through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 11, we won't take time to turn there. Jesus is with Mary and Martha, two of his dearest friends. Jesus is with them because their brother Lazarus had died. But there's a catch. Lazarus had been sick days earlier, and Mary and Martha had sent word. But Jesus delayed. He delayed such that Lazarus died. And so when he shows up in Bethany, both sisters say to him, we don't understand. We don't get it. If you had been here, my brother had not died. Jesus simply says, show me where you have laid. Then he says, roll back the stone. At this point, Martha says, hold up, Jesus. He's been dead four days. I love the man, but he stinks. His body has started to rot. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life. In essence, Jesus says, trust me, I've got this. He then says, Lazarus, come forth. One of my seminary professors said that Jesus had to be very specific. Because there will be a day when Jesus simply says, come forth, and everyone who has died in faith will come out of the ground. 
Jesus says, come, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus, wrapped up in his grave clothes, bouncing out of the tomb. You know somebody fainted when that happened. The Bible doesn't say that. That did. Somebody fainted. What's the point? Jesus is the one who fulfills Ezekiel 37. It is Jesus who ultimately brings the power of God to bear upon death. It is Jesus who actually defeated death in his own resurrection. He is the forerunner of what each one of us are to experience by God's grace. Quickly, I'll leave you with another story. This is a picture of the two men who have been the greatest mentors to me in ministry. I told you guys, I think yesterday, that I anticipated I was going to spend my life professionally in camp kind of ministry, in the middle of the woods, um, with teenagers, cabins, counselors, that kind of thing. The man on your left is Dr. Ken Hay. He founded a very large Christian camping organization that's celebrating its 50th summer this year. The man on the right is Stanley Long who is the camp director of Camp Eagle outside of Roanoke, Virginia, that primarily ministers to inner-city kids who have never spent much time outside and have very little experience with the gospel. I don't see eye-to-eye with either of these men, but they were incredible mentors in every sense of the word and wonderful examples of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm showing you their pictures this morning because in God's providence, both of these men actually died in the past 12 months. Let me tell you, it's weird when you start being old enough to experience the death of people who you have known well and who have shaped who you are. Dr. Hayes' death was somewhat expected. He was an 86-year-old man. Stanley's death, however, shocked everyone. He was 53 years old with nine children, some of whom were still in the home. Do I grieve their deaths? Yes. But in accordance with Scripture, I think it's important that we realize that we do not grieve as a people who have no hope. Our hope is not lost. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, Dr. Hay and Stanley and I are going to have a great conversation. Why? Because God had already done a work of resurrection in their hearts and their lives. God had already brought them from death to life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, their spiritual resurrection is a foretaste, is a forerunner of the physical resurrection that will then be theirs in Jesus. Our big point this morning is that God can raise anyone no matter how dead. It doesn't matter how dead you may feel. It doesn't matter how dead you may be by action, by thought, by word, by feeling. It doesn't matter how dead someone in your life may be. God can raise that person from the dead. The very dry bones can and will live. Know that. Believe that. 
lean into that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, dismiss us now with your blessing. Remind us that the resurrection, in every sense of the word, spiritually, physically, is real and it is coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.